welcome to the Hella Meditated Podcast with Joe Clements. Let's go. All right, so after getting our our audio file nerding out of the way, I think we got this. I want to welcome my good friend Josh Corda. Um, to the Hella Meditated podcast. Josh, you're my first, this is the first. Um, you are the first person doing this, and I really uh, <laughs> want to thank you. We'll see how this goes. This is an idea, and we'll see how it goes. Awesome. We'll like get all the, uh, we'll have like all the, everything that can go wrong will go wrong here, Absolutely. so that there's Absolutely. nowhere to go but up. And then this is going to be the sought after episode. Like, do you, do I was listening that first episode with Josh Corda. <laughs> you listen to Hella Meditated? <laughs> yeah, I got the original of <laughs> Josh Corda. Do they do that with podcasts? I, I don't <laughs> really think so. So, yeah, I think so, <laughs> living in that, man. so for I, I was uh, so for those of you who don't know Josh Corda, Josh Corda. Um, I don't know. I, I pulled up your your. I couldn't really find your bio. Your bio wasn't on. I'm just going to read what I found on Kripalu, I think. But uh, Josh Corda has been the presiding teacher at Dharma Punks New York City for the last 13 years. Um, this is amazing. His talks, which have had 1.9 million downloads, can be found at Dharma Punks NYC podbean.com that is amazing that is that's a lot of downloads you're just super popular bro but you know i can get into this this bio you know um <laughs> i don't know i just want to talk to you so look up look up josh go to his website and sit with josh it's he's an amazing person and i i met you I think the first time I met you was I was thinking about it 95 or something or 95 I'm sorry 2015 95 2015 I think it was an against the stream um retreat Joshua Tree and there was some kind of ceremony thing or something you were I don't know graduating something but uh, I remember there's all the teachers up on the you know teaching or whatever and all and uh, you're one of them and like you just stuck stuck out. I'm like, oh, this dude. What is up with this dude? <laughs> I'm like, really was interested. And I remember hearing you talk, and uh, you know, it was cool because I could relate a lot. And then also, I was kind of pissed because you're super smart. <laughs> and it's like I always felt that's one thing about Buddhism in general is I'm like, I I felt like I wasn't smart enough for it. You know, but getting to know you, not that you're not smart, you're just really uh, genuine, you know, and you just have a lot of knowledge. And I love what I love about you most in your teaching is that, you know, the um, Buddhist psychology piece of it, it's the practical way of um, using these practices, which I really appreciate. Um, so, yeah. And then, uh, you know, you've helped me out a lot and helped me out a lot with... Tons of stuff. So um, let's get into this. You ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just, I, you know, some questions. I, I where, One question I had, like, I was thinking about, like, I, I, I know, I think, but where did you grow up? 
I grew up in Manhattan. Um, I was born and raised on the way Upper West Side of Manhattan, not far from the borderline of uh, where Manhattan turns towards Lower Harlem. Okay. And uh, my, there was a, in the Upper West Side, there's a large uh, Jewish population. And that's where my mom uh, basically found apartments for my family to, to live in. Okay. As we are Jews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, I it was an interest time, interesting time yeah. growing up. I, I mean, some of my earliest, one of my earliest memories was my dad bringing me on his shoulders to uh, march uh, with uh, Martin Luther King, who was in town to speak at the oh, UN, just really, really, really early. Yeah, just like a sort of snapshot memory, uh, memories of uh, the days like when, uh, uh, like, of course, Malcolm X was killed. Yeah, <clears throat> only a couple miles from where we lived, and then, uh, uh, of course, the uh, the events in the city after Martin Luther King was assassinated and uh, the going on marches against the Vietnam War and uh, the experience of like the economic downturn yeah. in the city, uh, the Bronx burning and being able to see like the plumes of smoke Damn. rising no. up from the north and then uh, uh the blackout mm -hmm. which was an amazing experience in the middle 70s and then the birth amidst uh, you know what for that period of time new york was in an economic catastrophe right. uh, the city was being <clears throat> it was an enormous amount of flight uh, yeah, <laughs> mostly by white people away yeah. from the city. Yeah, uh, wow. And was your so, dad was your dad an activist or something, or just like you're just in it with him, like you're on his shoulders? Well, my dad was completely an inveterate lover of black culture and jazz, especially, okay. and he was uh, against. Like my both my parents were very vehemently mm. saw America as a profoundly racist culture, and uh, also neither of them really saw law enforcement as this benign uh, force. My dad, especially. Uh, due to his own childhood, uh, saw the police as uh, simply protecting the interests of the wealthy, the wealthy not yeah, some yeah. like kind of like neutral. And did they instill that in you or are you just kind of caught? Just... Well, no, definitely it's instilled in me, not just by their belief system, but also by what 
you witness in New York, you right. see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for instance, in the yeah, blackout, like how that impact you, you know, as a kid. And yeah, the blackouts in 1960, 1976, I think it was when the blackout happened, roughly that year. Uh, I was on visiting a friend. We rode highs, kites. <laughs> I think we were quite possibly tripping or something and uh suddenly all the lights go out and we're on the upper east side and i go down stairs and there's police everywhere up and down you know like park avenue and madison avenue and it's like suddenly there was this phalanx of police wow. there but then you know uh i walked across central park it was at night it was kind of scary but i got sketchy, to sketchy. the upper west side and when yeah. you got to like columbus suddenly there were no cops anywhere and there were there were stores being looted and just all kinds of man no one was directing traffic for a while <laughs> did you join in or did you <laughs> what'd you do well i joined in the sense <laughs> that i spent some of that night directing traffic because oh, i was wow. thrown out of my mind and i thought it would be a good idea <laughs> like a friend you know it was like i don't know 15 and just <laughs> as a kite but at those ages you think you know when you're tripping your brains like oh you got it yeah yeah so you know what i was but what, what i was witnessing though is that the police is not they were there in a very clear way yeah. uh simply protecting the the property of yeah the the pro they didn't care about no. anything that was going no. on in neighborhoods where people of color or even predominantly jewish middle class people uh, lived. it was all about where do the wealthy white people on the upper east side live and then um subsequently when you're a young uh drug dependent Teen, which I was, hmm. uh, you get in more and more interactions with the police, and you see yeah. the way they treat people. You wind up getting arrested, and then you see horrendous, uh, just mistreatment, especially of uh, people of color uh, in in the uh, police station. And then what you're saying is things still have not changed, of course. No, <laughs> not at all. It's a fucking not at all. Like the same so it's not it was a long way away of saying it was not just my my father uh, you know right. belief system, it was actually firsthand yeah. anecdotal but firsthand experience of seeing seeing, experiencing, being in it, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and then um I, uh, somehow, even though I was already, uh, an alcoholic, I managed an addict to, I managed to graduate from high school. I wound up in, uh, Oberlin college in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk. Uh, yeah. I wanted to talk more about that kind of, but one thing I, I want to get into, cause I know that you're, you're in recovery, right? Yes. In recovery. We can, we can say that. <laughs> your anonymity, whatever. But what were you like as a kid be before you turned to drugs and alcohol? Like what, what, what were you like when you were a kid? Like, be, I mean, well, my dad, despite being 
<clears throat> a lover of jazz and having very uh, being very funny and also being very uh, certainly had a, a strong his own strong political convictions, but he also was a an alcoholic and prone to violent mood swings, diagnosed bipolar. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> certainly it seemed also from other diagnoses had predilections towards um, the kind of grandiose ego structures associated with some degree of a cluster B narcissistic mm. uh, personality household yeah so there was police occasionally coming by which didn't help given no. my dad's attitude towards no. the police. yeah his <laughs> yeah. and then there was uh, a lot of upheaval so i grew up um with i'd say definitely uh classic uh disorganized attachment towards him sure. uh more secure with my mom who was yeah as predictable as my dad wasn't predictable. Yeah, yeah. Um, but being in a world of other men was terrifying. And the uh, thing that was for me the magic uh, medicine that allowed me to survive in a world with men was consuming alcohol, right. which is of course an anxiolytic yeah. in its own way and that it upregulates GABA. So it, the moment I discovered that, and also at first weed, and then by the time I was 15, uh, cocaine and hallucinogens yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, came in and so on and so forth. But before I discovered those things, I was just a an extremely anxious kid going into being brought to therapy two or three times a week. Damn. Were you into sports or anything like that? Were you like, like, or art? Were you into art or sports? Is, you know? Well, you know, up until like I discovered the miracles of drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll get into that. Like, it sounded like it was a solution. And like, it is for all, a lot of us. In the beginning, it was like, oh my God, I feel okay in my skin. <laughs> exactly. I tried, but I, uh, I would say that, um, uh, the moment I, I was 13 and cottoned on to, you know, weed and, and alcohol, and then wound up hanging out with kids that were in the, the nomenclature of the day, stoners. Mm -hmm. And we listened to, we started listening to stoner rock, like Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, some Zeppelin. So that was your first musical. That's like kind of another thing. Like, what what kind of music were you were you getting into? It sounds like Sabbath, Zeppelin, a lot of you know the yeah. kind of what is this late seventies kind of stuff? This like, would be mid seventies, and then yes. Like, um, it was funny though. I had I used to go to a record store where near my um, near my uh, high school. And my mother would give me an allowance every week. I think it was like $10, which was supposed to come in in case I needed food or got into trouble. But I would just basically uh, pull it up and then every once every two weeks buy like 
with twenty dollars you could pick up i think like three albums and oh, cool. so you're into into getting records early nice oh yeah and but the thing was the the clerk at the store this was hilarious by sheer coincidence um was this guy named uh david or brian gregory who's anyway the guitarist of this punk group called the cramps which oh, no was shit. There. And no, he was at the record. So he was the guy at the record store. He was the guy at the record store. He was scary as hell. I was terrified yeah. of him. He had like which most punked in the back back then. This punk was scary. Oh, it was totally <laughs> scary. Yeah. But this guy looked right out of the Adams family. If you ever get a chance to look uh, <laughs> of like the cramps. I mean, he literally had shaved head on one side and like long straight hair and wore like what looked like some kind of. Uh, like ghoulish yeah. makeup and Real deal. Or, or that he was probably that he was just a junkie and I I assumed he was a makeup because his skin was so white. But um <laughs> but anyway he I'd go and you know sometimes take albums that were real, you know, that he didn't want to let me buy. And so he'd take them out of my hands and, and swap them with music he approved of. And I was so terrified, I agreed to buy it. So <laughs> he had this ritual where I'd like go and try to buy like a Yes album or something because my friends were kind of listening to that shit too. But he'd take it out and put like Trout Mask Replica or Roxy Music or, oh, or um, you know... Uh, yeah, Captain Beefheart was something he kept pushing yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Bowie, of course. And uh, and then he allowed me to buy my Black Sabbath albums. Mm, of course. Well, you got, yeah, <laughs> you, can, you, can have, you can have a Black Sabbath record. Yeah, that was the one he would approve of. Not yes. With like a, <laughs> a, you know, Paranoid and like mm. um, Masters of Reality or whatever it was. And right. <clears throat> that kind of music and... Um, that was that was really big, and increasingly, I got into punk. Yeah, so was that your introduction to punk? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, like he he mentioned like the Ramones, right, right? And then my parents went to stay in London in '76, right when punk broke in England. So I, I got to spend a month there, watching in a really central london area right just north of the thames and got to see like all of this and it was funny because like so uh the record store clerk gregory like recommended a group called the ramones to me yeah. and i was like i saw posters of them around new york but they just looked like yeah. you know they were there like a picture of like what looked like hooligans you know yeah just dudes hanging out on the street they, yeah they looked like they were waiting to mug you or something yeah. and i was like what the fuck this is like some kind of weird garage band but then when i went to london they were like treated as gods wow oh so you went to london with your parents yeah, yeah. exactly okay. and um yeah i was like by that point like 15 or 16 and we went there and <clears throat> so i started just buying like you know tapes cassettes in the the record shops and i got my copy of you know the sex pistols never mind the bullets and all over from there yeah it was all over yeah. you know then i got to college and of course it was like the Clash, Crass, yeah. 
the fall, everything. What was your first concert you went to? Oh, this is embarrassing, but <laughs> it's no whole bars. Yeah. Uh, this would be Richie Blackmore's Rainbow with Ronnie James Dio singing. So oh, that fuck was, yeah. Uh, it was embarrassing a bit because <laughs> it was during the tour where they were all beginning to hate each other. Oh, and, okay. uh, but I never forget because um, we were there, I think it was like at the Beacon in New York, and uh, up for the encore, Blackmore, Richie Blackmore comes on, and he's no longer with his Les Paul, he's got an SG. And I was like, ooh, that's a cool guitar. And my friend next to me said, uh, yeah, well, he's going to break it. And I was like, why? why and he said, well, <laughs> because SGs then were so fucking cheap. Oh, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, yeah, watch, he's going to break. And sure enough, he got halfway through the song and just started drawing the SG. And, <laughs> I think it's because they didn't really have a good encore, but uh... <laughs> it wasn't like it was actually out of yeah. Interesting enough, uh, Ronnie James Dio was my first concert I actually wa- went to myself. Like I had a sneak to go go see them to see him that was the craziest show ever at the fairgrounds here i was so stoned and i was so stoned that i was scared stoned and then seeing ronnie james dio come out i'm like that dude is so small and like it just blew my mind like i was just like it was yeah so (laughs) he was like small he was like a little older than the rest of the group but also he just had one of those I mean, four octave voices that yeah. would just, when he wanted to, he could just hit those high notes. That was just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, that's cool. So, when did you like? Did did you get into the like the punk scene in New York and and what? what uh, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you could go down to CBGBs. See, I must have seen Lou Reed a bunch of times. John Cale, the Velvet Underground. I never got to see television because by the time uh i really got into their album marky moon it was they were difficult to actually watch live uh they didn't play as frequently i saw uh, patty smith uh play a couple of times and she was amazing nice. uh, hell yeah that's CB's also Patty Smith played a big concert in Central Park. It was, I think, at that point called the Dr. Pepper Music Festival. Uh-huh. It used to be called the Schaefer Music Festival, and then it changed into that. And it'd be the whole park, like just going off. Yeah, it would be just co- totally going off. It was like a huge scene, and like she played. And I remember, like at one point, she stood up on top of the uh, piano. And she had a guitar in her hand and an American flag behind her. And one by one, she ripped off the strings on her guitar. And her hands were completely bloodied. Oh, and that was the end of the show. Just her standing there with bloodied hands before an American wow. flag on top of a piano with what a the... stringless guitar. And that left a huge impression on me. And so, you know, then by the time I got out of college in the mid 80s new york was really big with hardcore so yeah yeah 
Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the hardcore scene. So is that kind of like kind of that crossover, right? Where it, it, all the bands started crossing over punk to metal. There was this whole kind of crossover. Yeah, there was like in New York, there was the no New York scene, which were sort of art bands that you know, that were completely atonal and like James Chance and the Contortions. And those were, and DNA and bands like this. But then there was also where I lived in the the um, East Village on Avenue B, which was a pretty terrifying place in 1983. Uh, there was this club, I think called A7, um, something like that. And so you could catch Minor Threat. And oh, cool. Did you get to see Minor Threat back in the day? Yeah, minor threat, but unfortunately, I, this was a mistake because I was heavily into my alcoholism. And right, this- that's it. Yeah, <laughs> you're in the throes, right? <laughs> so the whole straight edge scene just kind of so looking around me, and there were all these like completely, you know, skinhead guys with like X's on their hands, yeah. and they're like. <laughs> And I was like drunk off of my skull, and you know, yeah. not, not, you know, didn't get the message. You didn't get the memo. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing about it was that the ceilings were really low, and they, and so you really couldn't. And if you were drunk, you'd be there, and the music would just be overpowering the room. Right. It would be like definitely loud, so you really couldn't hear. Ian McKay or John Joseph or anybody really. John Joseph, the Cro-Mag. So you got to see the Cro-Mag. Yeah, yeah. those. Uh, but it's more the energy. Was it just the energy? It didn't even matter the music and what it sounded like. It was just like. Can the only energy imagine. for sure. The impending sense of like, I mean, at that point, you experience slam dancing as kind of this explosion of male testosterone yeah totally dangerous back in the day like punk was fucking scary oh (laughs) yeah hardcore was was fucking scary (laughs) i mean in new york they even had some really weird bands that i i mean um so there was this band called missing foundation Mm -hmm. that was insane that was playing everywhere Uh, another hardcore band, I can't remember their name, I used to hang out with, I lived right above their rehearsal space, so I would go down and they would bring me to different shows, and then we'd go to, there was a club called Safety in Numbers on on Avenue C, which was absolutely, the Sin Club, was terrifying to get to, (laughs) I mean, you brought, put your life in your hands, there was so many, you know, murders that were going on oh no shit i straight up murder <laughs> well absolutely but uh so i you'd see groups like um uh what are they they're still going on oh my goodness i'm blocking the name it'll come to me gnostic front back then uh mad ball those kind of bands were they around no, no swans swans yes the swans played there a lot and so we'd go to see them. Now that's like kind of more like uh, it sounded like some kind of ritual murder music. <laughs> swans, it sounds like and the swans were like you know they were like brilliant but super super dark. Yeah, you know, uh, and um, Sonic Youth started playing around. And, okay. 
they they were pretty influential. Rat at Rat are another band. Yeah, it was a scene, and at the time, you know, and you were in th- you were in the throes of your addiction right and then. Oh yeah, by that point, the drugs got darker. Yeah. I mean, there was like in that area, there was you know everybody had heroin, and the. Uh, mostly white on the east coast not the brown stuff that comes i remember when the brown stuff came because it was you could smoke it and yeah i fortunately had a real issue i can't uh i've never been able to vomit or at least if i do vomit it's like i have like opiates kind of the opiates (laughs) fuck with you with that shit exactly so i would wind up in a room with a bunch of guys you know snorting stuff getting violently ill but not being able to purge and so Mm -hmm. i'd just be nauseous and after doing that enough i was like you know what this isn't for me fuck what a blessing (laughs) (laughs) you know i was also lucky like in college like we all i mean crystal meth was big because it it was in ohio and once i was with people shooting it up and i tried but i got so freaked out i was yeah. because i was sure i was going to give myself an air bubble yeah. so <laughs> so you're, you're neurotic you're, you're neurotic it's like <laughs> blessings see the blessings it's like this alchemy <laughs> so I, I wound up just like snorting stuff and then like getting sick and not liking it and so eventually uh i wound up just sticking with the alcohol until yeah. Uh, 27 years ago when it got just even the alcohol became just not even it was beyond unmanageable I'd been to a number of rehabs and I'd been through hospital detoxes and had had terrible liver counts and all all, you know all the dire warnings and then finally um, an important relationship came to an end and I realized that it wasn't just affecting me, it was affecting my family, my friends. And so that was the line I was not, that was like, you know, and when it comes to uh, uh, recovery, I think that like, you know, people ask like, you know, what is like the key? And for me, the, while of course it's about uh, connecting with other people in recovery is the key, but the thing that gets you to start is when you truly see that you're suffering and that the suffering becomes so great that you no longer can fool yourself that, you know, it's in any way bringing you relief you just it's not it's not helping like it was in the beginning right exactly which is is an interesting place and i want to i want to kind of segue a little bit into into your practice but so i was watching there's that documentary of you which is super cool i think it's on tricycle or something like that yeah and the one thing that it struck me it's like so you you said that I think your your dad was into meditation and you kind of introduced you to, to meditation a little bit, but you're still using. So was that your introduction to med- meditation? Yeah, my dad got sober in 1973 or 74. And so suddenly 
the uh, alcohol and the chaos largely uh, largely ended. I mean, he was still, when he was sober, he could be a, a nightmare for sure. Yeah, but, yeah. just because uh, you're sober doesn't mean... Yeah, I know. Right, well, also, yeah. because he had bipolar disorder. And yeah, was, yeah, 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 yeah. Still treatment. more work to be, needs to be done. Yeah, but he did, he did get heavily, like, you know, people who are bipolar can get, can suddenly get heavily into one thing or another. And my dad would do that. Like, he built a boat in our apartment and <laughs> in your apartment he built yeah. a boat, he built a boat yeah. <laughs> did he ever was he able to get the boat out of the apartment oh sure he got it out in pieces but then when he oh, assembled pieces. it we got on it it sank so it was like <laughs> uh, it was not a great was not a great outcome but uh but anyway he got he got sober and his his sponsor said you have to have a spiritual practice and my dad uh was like well i'm not going to do anything that believes in god fuck that so i'm just going to go for buddhism because he was an he loved art mm -hmm. and all of his favorite artists were or a lot of his favorite artists were dabbling in buddhism he heard the you know uh <clears throat> that for great jazz artists had mentioned it as well as at the time uh hinduism as well yeah so he he started you know started buying all these buddhist books he wound up sitting with uh peter matheson's zen group in mm -hmm. long island and he uh bought these meditation cushions and he didn't really so much uh, and he dragged me to hear buddhist speak right. <laughs> so when did, did it so what stuck for you uh with the buddhist the the, the thing that stuck originally was because <clears throat> when i go to the meetings i'd be climbing the walls out of boredom sure. but um the books on the bookshelf that he had i remember reading uh like uh zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and oh, no. uh, <laughs> the three pillars of zen by philip caplo and uh zen mind beginner's mind and stuff like that and so it seemed all very interesting a little bit abstract for a teenager's brain but still yeah. it seemed cool and it seemed i was you know completely atheistic yeah. myself so it was like a practice that made far greater sense to me sure. than any of the other spiritual uh theistic alternatives so by the time i got to college i realized that my love of both freud because my mom was really into freud and my love of buddhism i would just write papers in college where i do freudian and buddhist takes on the subject and the, none of the professors would have a clue yeah it's, it's but contrasting but not contrasting really it, it, yeah yeah well yeah i mean and it kind of makes sense where you're at today you know yeah too yeah for sure yeah so i do like a freudian interpretation of some <laughs> you know <laughs> not some novel in a literature class or a yeah. buddhist interpretation about whatever and uh and I got through with a lot of doing private readings because at the time at Oberlin, you could do as many as you wanted where you just set your own curricula together. Oh, yeah. So I just did psychology 
uh, and Buddhism, that's all. And so it just kept going, you know, even when I was drinking in the, throughout the 80s and early 90s, it was always a big love. And I'd go and try to find a, you know, a place to meditate that felt safe. So you're meditating, you're meditating when you're still using your med- had a meditation practice i mean the worst meditation practice yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i can imagine but you know it's it's, it's totally it's, you know i mean when you're not sober meditating right. is especially if you're actively drunk it's kind of a joke you know right. why well, the, the fifth precept that might be in there <laughs> yeah i mean you're basically you know and a lot of it had to do with trying just to be within my own, sit in my own skin, right. which was, mm-hmm. so you, <clears throat> the way we were told to do it then, which is the worst advice you could possibly give. And I have no idea how they, how they propagated this stuff, but they'd say to go out and buy an egg timer. And then you, you <clears throat> put the egg timer on like whatever, 10 minutes. And then you put the fucking egg timer behind you and you just sit. <laughs> and just you're you'd be crawling out of your skin just fucking say bear it yeah just, <laughs> so you're just learning to bear fucking like you're literally it, every minute felt like an yeah. hour and 43 minutes waiting for that dean i've been in meditations like that though when is that fucker gonna ring that bell he's i know it's been longer than 15 20 minutes i know it has yeah. <laughs> totally. and you know like there was no suggestions of using guided imagery no ways to instruct you to soothe yourself while you were there was no instructions on uh meta practice there was not, no not not trauma-informed by any means no, no exactly yeah, yeah. They didn't say how to orient the safety cues in your environment they didn't say listening to sounds of your environment was an option it was just like sit there and don't think for 10 minutes it was like well okay this shoot me now uh <laughs> basically yeah, yeah. Sure. so of course then finally uh you know that was supplanted by stumbling across some i remember listening to talks of uh alan watts no. that were available on cassette and i listened to them and i just sort of close my eyes and just listen to him ramble on, but it was better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Gave yourself some, something to focus on other than, other than is that fucking egg timer going to go off? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when I got sober, I really looked at cause I got sober 27 years ago and I really decided then that was when I was going to really delve into my practice a lot more. And because I was not going to be one of the people in, 12 step that was going to pray and uh i was not going to be one of those people that was going to walk around talking about god but i did need to have in addition to you know i mean obviously recovery works by connecting with other people because addiction is a way to try to regulate our emotions without relying on other people so yeah 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 fellowship super important yeah, exactly. It's it's the foundation, like the Buddhists yeah. do in Ananda. Yeah, the whole of the spiritual and the whole of recovery is other people. But Absolutely. there's times when it's the middle of the night, yeah. and you know you're suddenly awake, and 
you're freaked out. And if you don't know how to do some some form of self-soothing approach. So you, I started like um, some friend of mine happened to have, at that point, it was just cassettes of Buddhist Theravadan monks uh, teaching. And I, I, I want to say like uh, Ajahn Sumedho was on mm -hmm. it and uh, somebody else. And so I just started, I got a copy and I just started playing it and listening to that. And Sumedho could could uh, put to sleep somebody on a speed bench by being crystal yeah. meth. I mean, yeah. it was very slow. And before you know it, I would be like relaxed. And uh, then I started going around sitting in many different Buddhist centers that had popped up in New York. This is in recovery. Uh, yeah, <laughs> all in recovery. I, I really doubled down. And by the time I... Uh, so um, I finally in, uh, I was in a Tibetan group and I sat with a Zen group for a while. And then finally uh, Noah came to New York in 2002 and started the New York Dharma Punks. Right. I met him in uh, a meeting and- 12 step meeting? 12 step meeting. Yeah. And he just basically, when he found out I was Buddhist, he said, you should come to, I'm giving a talk at some bookstore. And, you know, his approach, uh, you know, putting aside all the controversy surrounding him, but Noah's approach for me was, um, at the time, really, really, really helpful in that he... Well, one of the issues I had with all the other Buddhist teachers I had sat with was they came from this holier than thou, right. you know, I'm spiritually on another plane, right. uh, it, very othering. I felt like, yeah. you know, like they were presented as if they never had, you know, a stressful, super blissed out. Well, totally blissed out. It's particular. kind of like, well, yeah, what, like what my attraction to you and yeah, and Noah's teach, teaching stuff, the Dharma punks kind of way. And it kind of, it makes me think of like our hardcore background where it's like the hardcore scene, the punk scene, there was no like barricades. There's no like separation from audience artists kind of stuff. You're all a part of it. And that's what I like about, about your teaching in particular. Well, you know, especially the thing also about hardcore, you know, so if you look at the alternative, you have these rock gods. That yeah, exactly. Were like, you yeah. know, like, uh, you know, I mean, whether they were Robert Plant or yeah. <laughs> or Jimmy Page on the one end or the guys in Yes, but they're all dressed in these frilly clothes. They all had these beatific smiles. When you, went see, shit. Yeah. You know, when you went to see John Joseph or yeah. these guys were not happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and killing it, and then the other thing too is like it looks more attainable. Like, oh, I could do that. Like for me, like being a musician, like 
you know, oh, I could do that, you know, whereas like these arenas, I, I, fuck, that, that is so unattainable. And it was the same kind of thing with different teachers for me. And like, that's what attracted me to you. And, you know, yeah, like people like Noah Vinny. Noah first, like when I, one of the first times I heard him, he talked about it in his teaching. It was like, it was closer to a 12 step meeting than a Buddhist in that. It sounded like he was qualifying yeah. rather than 12 step meeting rather than, giving a traditional dharma talk and he talked about like you know just like his own issues with the law and then the gambling issues that he had and he talked about this stuff and for me that was really important because i no longer felt that there was this idea that um there was this kind of that uh, spirituality was trying to get to this plateau of this image of yeah. being imperturbable, always like a, a desti Yeah, it was a destination rather than just how are we meeting the experience. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And beyond the fact that it was the meeting the experience, it was also, it felt to me so much more authentic than oh. we go into other uh uh, like especially in the Zen tradition, I go and sit with these Roshis, and oh my God, they just yeah, I, I couldn't relate. I didn't feel like they, this person and me were breathing the same oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> so, totally. <laughs> so I've always gravitated towards people that wear their uh, their challenges and. You know, I mean, I'm started uh, in my own as I pursued my own authentic path of uh, being, and eventually in uh, in nine eleven happened. I really wanted to be of more uh, help to yeah. the world around me because I was working in at the time I was working in advertising, and so I became really disheartened with my career, and I really in 2001 made a dedication i was gonna give up advertising and pursue something that would be a help to others i started just started studying buddhism so hard mm -hmm. uh started like literally in my office while i was supposed to be working i'd be sitting there transcribing talks by you know ajahn amaro or yeah. Uh, you know, Ajahn Suchito. And that's how you. That's how your 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 kind of connect your brain works, right? It's like yeah. the study part, you know, kind study, of study, 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 yeah. study, study, like studying four or five hours a day of the Dharma, reading the Pali Canon, reading. Uh, there were the very beginnings of Buddhist. Um, uh, psychology books that were coming out uh epstein's yeah. like uh going to pieces without falling apart or whatever it was i can't remember what books started but they were <clears throat> i started just reading anything that blended uh psychology and buddhism because that those two were my great loves yeah. and um and around, I started volunteering more at Dharma Punk, started right. 
So that group was happening. The Dharma Punks group was already happening. Right. And then, so in uh, like late 2004, Noah announced that he was going to go back to, or early 2005, he was going to go back to Los Angeles. And he said, look, I'm inviting you to teach because you've been spending the last three years just completely studying, doing all this effort into it. And <clears throat> there's nobody else here who has the spirit. So you're kind of going to have to just, and he spent time with me, gave me pointers and tips as to how to teach. Uh, you know, he would give me once I remember us sitting for a long, a long period and him just asking me all the questions that oh, yeah. I could expect people to ask. And, uh -huh. you know, and were you, did you have a willingness? Did you want to kind of, you, you said that you wanted to have service. Was this what you're kind of looking looking at, having a group? Or? No, I didn't want to be a teacher. No, I thought. <laughs> yeah. My big plan I was. I can totally my big, my big plan was because I, after I graduated uh, from college, I wanted to go in to do um, <clears throat> uh, uh, a master's in social work. But I got derailed by poverty and, uh, mm. you know, needed to make a buck. So I started <laughs> like, you know, and also I was in no shape to go to graduate school then. So by the time I was sober in 2002 and three, it seemed like, well, the plan was to get into Hunter, uh, get a social work degree and okay. blended with Buddhism and be, become a Buddhist therapist. Oh, cool. And but what wound up happening is and becoming, being asked to teach, I started teaching and then uh, people came um, originally because they were coming to hear Noah and some couldn't tell the difference between me and Noah because we're both small <laughs> and tattooed. tattooed white dudes. And a lot of people just, you know, saying, hey, Noah, and I would just, you know, <laughs> you have to timidly inform them that I wasn't. Yeah. But uh, then what happened was, you know, I realized over time that I was through sponsoring people in 12 step and through counseling people who would just come up and want to meet with me. Yeah. Over the years, it started the spiritual counseling became bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Then I, in 2011 to 2005, went through a formal uh, by that point, I'd already been teaching for quite a number of years, but I went through the teacher training yeah, program. from 2011 to 2015, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that was like, you know, program. that was like almost four years of training. And then by the time I got out in 2015 with that official empowerment, I basically. <laughs> You're christened. Yes, <laughs> as it were. By that point, as I. As it were, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I basically, you know, started, um, uh, you know, sometime around 2011, after I'd been teaching for six years, <clears throat> I, it started becoming more and more feasible for me to live off donations. Yeah. And I was doing less and less freelance gigs and as an art director. And eventually I totally stepped away and, uh, Along the way, I've managed to bring in a lot of additional loves into 
the Dharma, you know, my love of attachment theory, my yeah. love of neuropsychology. Well, yeah, and that, 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 I mean, that kind of is, is you, you wrote a book too, and it's, it's, I, I thought it was more, more on Buddhist psychology, a little bit is, is um, un, 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 unsubscribed, right? That's the book, unsubscribed. And I haven't read it yeah. totally, I was skimming through it. I'm not a fucking big reader, so. But uh, tell us a little bit about the book too. You know, is that kind of have your? Does it merge your love for the Buddhist psychology, kind of? You know, the book came out of like a uh, a confluence of events, which were one. Um, at the time, I really liked. I loved uh, Tara Brock's radical acceptance, mm, yeah. and yet, as much as I loved it, I also thought that there was room for. Uh, a kind of uh, uh, a uh, another view uh, mm -hmm. to propose in addition to that wonderful book, which was that, I mean, obviously, Brox was proposing this radical acceptance mm -hmm. as a, an approach to mindfulness and as approach to healing from trauma. But in my own life, because I, at that point, had made the tradition, the transition from being stuck in a terrible job yeah. to uh, finding meaning, a huge degree of meaning and purpose in life through doing everything by trying to be of service and donating my time and living off of just generosity. But you know, just really focusing on the, on how beneficial making significant life changes to yeah. find as an authentic approach to creating meaning yeah. <clears throat> to exert agency. Right. So it was the message I had or in my life was a little bit different than <laughs> radical acceptance. It wasn't always, you know, because the one it's of like the, more more active. I think if, I yeah. feel like like your your approach and, and what I'm hearing with the book too is like yeah again not that destination. It's like how are we applying this like to fucking our dissatisfaction of this you know suffering right our daily just being in this human condition. Yeah, I mean, but to be sure, I would go to so many meetings with so many great Buddhist teachers, and I'm not talking about. Brock here, but a number of, you know, you get, you'd sit here with, you said like in New York, every teacher would come through. I got to be an attendant to some of the most famous, mm. um, Ajahn Brahm, Amaro, Suchito, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. I got to, all these guys I got to sit with, learn from, be it their attendant. People like Goldstein would come through and so Yeah, he's over there, right? Up, up, uh, yeah. And one of the things that would happen is you'd hear in these gatherings, people would say, um, you know, I really am miserable in my job. I really can't stand my boss. And the instructions were always the same. Well, Maybe you're suffering because you want it to be otherwise, or because you're. <laughs> of course, I want it to be fucking otherwise. God damn it! I'm painfully aware. I am aware. <laughs> exactly. You're resisting. You're aversive to the experience. You, yeah, you, you, you just accept, you know, the fact that you're working in this miserable cubicle, you know. And I, I at that point, I had actually left the, the job and actually devoted myself to providing spiritual counseling and i thought well i mean all that 
can be true, but in my experience, there there's an enormous amount to be said by actually making significant life choices and decisions, yeah. exerting agency. And if you're not happy, well, then find what gives your life, what creates a sense of flow, you know, flow. attention, and yeah. what's immersive, what creates a sense of meaning, vitality, and really... Do you feel that's where mindfulness could because to to find what what is really true for you that's what mindfulness i feel has helped me is like so that i can make those decisions rather than just rather than just uh you know reacting I'm, i can respond and make those kind of things without just like no i i gotta get out of this job or whatever and it's like okay now what <laughs> you know that kind of thing it's like and i i kind of had the same experience sitting with uh some of the monastics and stuff it's like yeah man i love hearing i love their teaching but it's like dude <laughs> you're a monastic it's like you know you don't have to wake up at you know seven o'clock in the morning get your kid ready for school whatever it is you know drive them you know do all the things um yeah, so that's, that's what I, you know, I, I the practical, the pr- practicality of how mindfulness can, can um, be applied to our life is, I, I think, one of the huge reasons why I love your teachings and I, I, I resonate with you so much. Um, what would be one of, like, if there is there a go to teaching, a go to practice that you do that, what's your like go to meditation practice or mindfulness practice? I mean, I have to say that I probably meditate. Uh, no more than 25 to 30 minutes every day. Mm. <clears throat> That's one sitting. I'm not like, I've never been the biggest. Uh, there are people, you know, who, when you meet them and they'll, they'll say they're Buddhist because they go on retreats or because right. they meditate for 45 minutes a day. And for me, that's part of it, but that's not for me, the definition for me, the definition in my, and there's no real definition, it's just from my definition is that it's a way, it's not just, it's not just meditation, which is only two factors of the Eightfold Path. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's how you interact with other people. It's how much you study and perceive actively or train your thoughts to be in accordance with the Dharma, which means you, one, focus on the fact that nothing is guaranteed, that we are of the nature to grow old, become sick and die. You weigh every choice against the truth of existence. You, uh, or one, uh, should constantly be wary of the fact that we live in the emotional outcomes of our choices so karma in other words it's not i'm not a a rebirth person but i do believe that how we act towards others creates uh, a perception of the world that we will either suffer because we uh act towards people from a vulnerable, open, kind perspective, as opposed to being uh, suspicious and creating perceptions that it's a cutthroat, everybody for themselves. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, I, I hear it's like, and what I like, mindfulness practice has been kind of, uh, I like it's a contemplative practice. We, we, we contemplate this human condition 
You know, yeah. it's like it can get, you know, I think meditation and mindfulness can get mindfulness can get just lumped into any meditation like you're saying where it's like it's concentration meditation like be focused kind of like you're talking about in the beginning put on the egg timer yeah that's like fucking so hard so the mindfulness piece is more contemplative contemplate the senses a little bit get in touch you know that kind of thing contemplate that yeah the human condition the mind and how are you responding to yourself so that you can respond to others more ethically more kind more compassionate um yeah, I think I, 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 that's what I'm hearing is it's more of a contemplative practice. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'm again, for me, I do different kinds of meditations. I'll do sound meditations where I just yeah. listen and just receive whatever cool. sounds. I'll do big sky mind meditations where I try to hold in consciousness, not just allow, not try to push away thoughts, but not allow my awareness to collapse around thoughts so you're you're aware of just awareness itself and just allowing whatever is going through to go through without any resistance Mm -hmm. then there's i'll do guided visualizations where Mm -hmm. i'll visualize places that i feel really safe Mm -hmm. i'll visualize i'll do some of the early buddhist practices of deva nusati visualizing protective spirits i'll do yeah yeah. um, see and that's what i love about your you you bring the whole aspect it's not just this one you know you know it's 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 this broad spectrum but it is all buddhism you know it's like yeah all the practices i do are early buddhist and you know nimitta practices where you visualize a color and expand it flame meditations where you visualize you have a candle and you look at it, you close your eyes, you try to recreate the candle, you open it, that's the casino meditation, you close your eyes, try to create the image of it in your mind, and then there's, uh, oh my goodness, there's uh, Kaganusati, visualizing times of generosity you've experienced it's kind of like a gratitude practice and, and all um, this stuff do you feel like it, it refires that like to bring into your your psychology uh, ref, uh i i'm not gonna be able to say it because i'm not uh <laughs> i'm not a scientist and a neurologist or whatever but neurons fire right when they connect they fire to get they fire together they wire together so I, yeah, I think that's I, a time's law yeah so is that kind of some of the like kind of the visualizations kind of stuff, or even like with the with the thoughts or your your folk your focus on different kind of? Um... Well, there's a number of reasons why visualizations work. One is that the right brain uh, and where and uh, sort of areas of the brain that hold associative uh, more uh, painful memories and experiences is utterly resistant towards they towards you know words concepts ideas but imagery speaks directly to areas like the right orbital frontal right temporal lobe right amygdala yeah, and yeah. so forth and uh to um you want to bypass to a certain degree over reliance at times of constantly trying to uh, heal by only reframing the way we interpret our life. Right. Now, now cognitive reframing is important. Yes. You know, we, in today's 
therapeutic landscape, there are people who are like, you know, basically it's all CBT. Mm-hmm. And then there are people like, no, it's all somatic. And right. then there's other people that it's all relational <clears throat> work. And for me, you have to use all totally, of those. Yeah. Totally. If you don't reframe the way you're interpreting your experience, uh, you'll, you're right. I mean, your, your ventral medial can trigger your amygdala and cause more suffering than you could yeah. believe by what's called default mode operation. But Not, if we I think that's a huge problem with um, mindfulness sometimes with meditation is it can be re-traumatizing a lot of times, you know, if it doesn't go in, especially with people with, you know, past traumas, it could be really, uh, it could trigger those again. So it's like having a trauma informed way approach of. Yeah. It's, meditating. I think part of that is that when people do uh, trauma work uh, in mindfulness is that you have to give them a significant amount of orienting tools right. that allow them yes. to back yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like give them way, give us ways out. You know, yeah. Like, most people I know who are therapists who work with trauma, if they're EMDR or SE, mm-hmm. they spend the first five meetings mm-hmm. just finding safety cues, training people how to locate images of secure people in their life, uh, learning how to uh, interocept safe body sensations, learning how to exterocept safety cues in their environment. So if they start becoming flooded, if they start enacting a dissociative freeze response, they can back off and touch base with things that down-regulate their autonomic re, nervous re, system. Reorient, yeah. When you yeah. dysregulate it, you can regulate your nervous system. We we do have the power to do that. It's just we're so detached from that. It's like it brings us to our animal instinct of using our eye, using our senses. To yeah. No, because we're, okay, are we really safe in this moment? We can know, I can, I'm in this space, I know I'm safe, but my nervous system could, no, it's not safe, you know, so we got to really let our nervous system know. And I think through our senses, right? Yeah, you know, I, we've been going a, a long time, and I, 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 we could probably go on for fucking ever, but I kind of want to wrap this up because I know you're a busy, <laughs> busy person. I don't, but I could keep talking to you. But, uh, um, you know, a, a few of the questions. There's one. There's I, I kind of want to talk about a little bit that you, you're a musician too. You you write music. Um, uh, do you make beats? What, what kind of music? What music are like? Uh, do you like writing? Um, what instruments do you like playing? Well, I have like a bunch. I have like yeah, you play you play like a mandolin. Or not no, banjo, banjo, banjo. So you're good at it, too, dude. You got I some fucking skills. Yeah, but I do mostly stuff on Ableton on my computer using right. my keyboard and. I like creating electronic music. Were uh, you ever in a band? Yeah. Yeah. I was in a band, and the, my issue with bands is that um, at the time, uh, like in my 20s, it was just a bunch of bored guys yeah. sitting around smoking pot, <laughs> watching, yeah. watching yeah. hockey and just playing their instruments as loud as they could. Right. I was always like the bass player or the keyboardist and was like trying to... <laughs> trying the to worst s- job in a band, dude. <laughs> the keyboardist or the bass player. 
But then I would wind up becoming the person I didn't like because I'm constantly, if you, I don't know if you got the chance to see the, uh, there's this boring, is unimaginably boring Beatles six a documentary documentary yeah. I, I watched a lot of it it was, yeah. it was interesting i just i just really, really felt bad for george harrison the whole time because he's writing the best songs he's writing time. so many good songs he's just so on the side he's like i'm, I'm out of here but i'm like watching mccartney and but that was the person i was becoming the guy who was sitting there with the bass like saying okay why don't you play this and oh, yeah. why don't you play that because all they were doing was just doing endless you know hello riffs bro (laughs) just like just sitting playing these terrible riffs soloing each other (laughs) yeah and i was just like fuck it i can't bear this like (laughs) let's try this let's try that and then it became so frustrating that i just had to just make music on my own yeah yeah. it's been really joyful yeah do you have anything out do you can people upload your stuff i mean i do it for myself i mean sometimes i post it yeah and people are very complimentary but it's all really just i think you've sent me a couple things that have been really cool the like the way it's almost a mood that you you uh you create with your music is super cool maybe um i can use something at the end of this this episode just to trail out would be kind of cool okay i'll send you some so uh wrapping it up here um this is kind of it could be a deep question but it doesn't have to be you know there's the um meditation mindfulness in the west is almost like this big gold rush in a sense i feel like this spiritual kind of boom kind of thing um where do you see meditation mindfulness going from here like where do you feel like um maybe for you personally your practice your teaching i mean in general it's too big a uh domain Mm. of inquiry and practice to even begin to generalize all the different ways uh, that mindfulness might develop Mm. into both clinical applications, therapeutic uh, applications will continue to grow, I suspect, in many different kinds of therapies. More and more therapists will use guided visualizations and integrate it with body awareness body skins and uh in terms of my own practice i mean i just go where uh things interest me and where i i just tend to give talks on generally i through my counseling with people i hear people struggling or facing issues we i collaborate with them for solutions and then i start hearing themes that i want to give in my talk so i do a lot of study and i look at early buddhist teachings on it and i look at contemporary you know clinical insights and i try to so like this week i'm doing a talk on uh, addressing chronic pain through nice. different visualization strategies and nice. so that's interest you know other last week it was uh using skillful communication nonviolent 
communication techniques mm -hmm. in conflict. Sometimes it's working with rumination, sometimes anxiety disorders, sometimes uh, tools to motivate when people are going through depressive episodes sometimes. So whatever people talk about with me can spur something that I think, oh, wow, that's really important. And I know so far this will be helpful, but I really should devote more study to this. Mm -hmm. And I start doing a lot of research and then I let the, the learnings kind of blend into what I offer. And when I see they're useful, then I give a talk on it. Nice. So yeah, what, what you apply to your own life and how, yeah. Yeah, cool. Love exactly. Cool, cool, cool. Um, new book that you you would recommend what's 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 a, a book in the last I'd say the book that right now i would say is uh i mean there's so many i go through but yeah. like if i had to point at one i would say chatter by ethan cross it's a great uh introduction into why the mind spirals out with self-oriented thought and, when, and then different clinical approaches to quieting the chatter in one's mind. And a lot of the tools are applicable directly in a meditation practice. And I love that. That's so hmm. And then you know, there, another good one would be um, attachment-based yoga and meditation strategies for trauma by Deirdre Fay for those who are interested in how trauma works and how meditation and yoga practices can address. So, I mean, I could go on and on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you could with the books. How about a new artist or a new record? Oh, I mean, there's so many. I've been listening to... Like, I mean, whenever people say what music or or movies yeah. do you recommend, I'm always like, there's so many, but... Yeah. But like a new artist that's out there, a new new music, uh, band or something that you... I mean, there's like, uh, so there's a Boston, now they live in Berlin, uh, stoner metal or progressive stoner metal. I don't, group called Elder, which I really like. Elder, I've heard of them, yeah. I really like, uh, I've been so into the kind of uh, um, sleep. Yeah. Uh, Om, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so Al Cisneros for me is a bassist of the gods. I mean, he's just so, his approach to playing the bass is so incredible and their lyrical themes are bizarre it's kind of like uh it seems like marijuana mixed with spirituality <laughs> yeah. uh, i don't know if you can extract <laughs> okay which and could be the same thing depending on where you're at in your life <laughs> i don't think there is any difference because he sings in like one moment about like transcendent states and then the next lyric he'll be reaching for his bong you know so <laughs> and, uh, and you know i mean and uh, we both were talking about that turnstile record i know that you were i love turnstile yeah, so they're they're great Hello. yeah i love groups like uh i definitely love um you know i love desert rock i love uh 
you know, Queens of the Stone Age are fun. Yeah. Seen yeah. them, they're pretty good. I like uh, bands like Mastodon and uh, I even death metal groups like Meshuga. I like, yeah. uh, I love, uh, I love jazz because my dad was a jazz, you know, just beyond fan, just a jazz freak. So I love listening to Coltrane and Dolphy and, and Davis and those guys. And uh, yeah. Beautiful. So I guess last question, is your glass half full or half empty? <laughs> I, I guess I'm a half full kind of guy. There's this old Buddhist teaching uh, that uh, so there's actually some Buddhist teachers erroneously say there's in Buddhism three personality styles, which is aversive, yep. greedy, and delusional. Yeah. Actually, in the um, in the commentaries, there's actually four. There's, it's like attachment styles. There's those three, and then there's uh, sada, which is uh, those with conviction, with spirituality, those who have. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. But I have to say that if I was one of the three <laughs> challenged one, I would be yeah. the more uh, greedy lust for life. I'm not the person who have full for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not the person who walks into the room and just sees everything they don't like. I'm not the person who walks into the room and is lost in dissociative thought yeah. about myself and mulling over issues from the past. I'm definitely the person who originally would walk into the room and look for where the alcohol and drugs yeah. were. Now yeah. Well, now I said that's what now I'm, I'm the person who walks into the room and just looks for where the people yeah. who look fun to yeah. interact with. You see, yeah, I mean, I knowing you, you have a, a, a love for life for sure and a positive, positive, positive vibe. So I really appreciate you, Josh. And I'm so honored that you uh, did this first episode with me. <laughs> so appreciate you. So it's a high standard. You you set a high bar, and um, I'll put all the ways of the links. I mean, they'll see that this is like an hour and a half. What? That's they'll... all good. They don't have to listen to it the whole. <laughs> I've listened like... to it anyway. <laughs> But I appreciate you, and I will put in the notes where to sit with Josh, where to sign up for um, your your groups. Tuesday, do you still do the Tuesday Zoom yeah, groups? Tuesday online, and that's that's it. You just show up. Everything's yes. free by donation. Yeah. And yeah. Cool. All right, bud. Have a good one. Appreciate you. Later. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Hella Meditated Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Stay up, stay true, be you. Yeah. Yeah.